Hello, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast. Today, I'm talking with Freya O'Dell, an English teacher at St. George's International School in Rome. Freya is a former head of department, literacy lead, and current member of the Twitter Glitterati when it comes to Edu Twitter and essentially loving life in the eternal city. It was a fantastic opportunity to speak with Freya, who is the first English head of department I've had on the podcast, despite the fact she is now enjoying her time focusing purely on classroom instruction and letting someone else do the leading. Thanks again to Freya for sharing her insights and myriad suggestions for texts, pedagogy, as well as Twitter people worth following. We discuss Freya's favourite text to teach, an introduction to her career to date, how the school's core values translate into the English curriculum, how planning and materials are organised between the department, the need to balance canonised writers with new voices in the curriculum, the specific challenges Freya's students face in English, the part technology plays in delivering the English curriculum, Rome's approach to work-life balance, and finally, resources for English teachers who would like to continue improving. I hope all the English teachers out there gain some insight from our conversation and wish Freya well with continuing her adventure abroad. Okay, Freya, what's the best text you've ever read, studied or taught uh, in your career or as as a student and why? Um, I think when I think about the text that I've taught, um, I'm, I'm going to say controversially of Mice and Men, because I know there's a lot of discussion about of Mice and Men, but it always resonates with pupils and it, there's always something in it that pupils take away. And there's always that pin drop moment at the end of the book. I'm not mm. going to give it away just for those of you that haven't read it. <laughs> where there is this absolute stunned silence because, you know, it's about friendship and, and, and loss. Um, I, so I, I do actually really enjoy teaching of Meister Men and I understand the controversies around it, but I also think that as educators, we have a job to make sure that we have those sensitive discussions with the students about the books that we're reading and maybe also supplement with other reading. Um, I also really, really love, I've talked about it a lot, The Terrible Thing That Happened to Barnaby Brockett with Year 7, just a fantastic book about defining normality for ourselves. I think it's just such a wonderful message and story. And I absolutely, and I've talked about this a lot, love Long Way Down. I just think it's such a masterpiece of a book for Year 9 and and just fantastic for teaching pupils about poetry and just seeing poetry in a different form that isn't just you know a standard poem it's a it's a complete novel and the way in which he manipulates the language and crafts it is just so beautiful okay fantastic that's a lovely answer um for those for those people who are thinking about teaching abroad in the in the either distant future or the near future um can you just give us a quick introduction to your career to date and current role at saint george's in rome yeah, so um, I've had an amazing career, actually. I feel very fortunate in that. It's been very varied. I haven't done the linear whoop. Um, I started as an NQT in a failing school, actually. It was a category four. It was very violent. It was, it was and I'm not going to tell you what school, which school it is because it's now very well known for being extremely excellent. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> things change. 
Um, and I, a couple of years in, I took on the head of media role. And then a couple of years after that, I took on the shared running of the department. Um, and then I got to the point where I thought, well, what, you know, we're kind of getting where we need to go. And so I'm going to just be off. I'm just going to go. And I went to Italy for the first time and I went to Padua and the English International School of Padua for two years um, and loved it there. And then probably had a bit of a midlife crisis. I turned 30 and I was like, I need to go back to the UK um, and, and sort myself out. And went back to the UK and walked into a sort of TR position where I was responsible for lots of random things like speaking and listening very quickly stepped up to acting 2IC when the 2IC went off on maternity and then led on literacy across the curriculum and then got my last job as director of English at my old school, um, which I really loved. Again, another sort of very tricksy situation walking into trying to turn the school from sort of inadequate RI to good. Um, then took on director of teaching and learning uh, and literacy lead and then I thought oh I'm off ski again <laughs> I'm going to come to Rome um, and I was really really fortunate because my the school that I'm in now advertised and I'd always said I always knew I was going to come back to Rome or Italy I always knew I was going to come back to Italy and I had my eye on two schools and this school advertised and uh. um, the rest is history so I am just a main scale teacher of English now I, I temporarily led on on English I've temporarily led on different key stages but I'm loving just the teaching I, I to come back to what you said a moment ago not about midlife crisis per se but um I often have that kind of existential crisis about maybe that's probably too kind of uh too much of an exaggerated word for it where I feel like why am I not back in London or why am I not back in Liverpool or why am I not back in like some you know in the state sector and and am I really doing the right thing whatever that means in in an international school wherever it happens to be do you ever I mean, now that you're living in Rome, I've seen plenty of the aperitivo photos and things like that. Does that does that ever cross your mind when you buy the Tiber? No, actually, because um, I think I had that the first time round. So I think I had that crisis point when I was working in Padua. And I very distinctly remember leaving Padua on the plane and just crying my eyes out. And I got home to my parents. And I said this before, like my whole family, we were going off to Glastonbury. So everyone was in a party mood and I was just in floods of tears. <laughs> um, so I, I think I have a more um, rational, more calm approach now in the sense of, you know, there are times when things aren't perfect. We, you know, international teaching isn't always perfect. But holistically, when you look at your life, for me, the quality of life that I have here is just so much better. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Okay. Um, in terms of St. George's, uh, the, the school in Rome that you mentioned before, uh, I did a little bit of research in terms of the website and, and the, the values and that kind of thing, the, the nine C's that it states yeah. to have in terms of like competency, contentment. I'm, I'm not going to list them all out. Uh, to what extent does the English department um, try and align itself with those things? Or is it more of a, is there more of a holistic understanding that, of course, in every school we're trying to meet those things? To what extent does it enter the planning uh, at the end of the year or the start of the year? I think that's a great question. And you've done your research. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the 90s were brought in with our current um, head teacher uh, when he joined us a couple of years ago. And 
Um, I would say we're kind of in that kind of transition process. I think that, you know, ultimately we all address things like creativity and communication and collaboration. We do all of those things. Um, and I think internationally, if you work with the IB, you're very familiar with the ATLs um, as well. And so um, at the moment, actually, I'm really, really interested, probably a little bit more so in the ATLs. Uh, and we've just written a learning to learn program. Uh, for our students in Key Stage 3, Key Stage 4, which, which is going to hit in September. And I think that's that's the focus, isn't it, that I really like about the international school. It isn't just about the academic, actually. It's about the learning and us as learners and how we best support pupils as learners. So we, I guess we've seen a lot of research come out in England with regard to um, learning, you know, the work by Zoe and Mark Enzer and generative learning, for example. Mm. But I think that, we're really starting to pin that down now to make sure that we're offering a range of opportunities for our pupils to really reflect on where they are with their learning journey. And so I think we do tap into it with our schemes of work, but I think it's also got to be a whole school approach to that kind of culture um, with regard to those areas. Yeah, I, I certainly. I think the I think I saw your interview with the answers a few uh, a few weeks ago, maybe, and it yeah, it actually spurred me on to go and buy the book, which is unfortunately because I bought I bought it through a uh, notoriously slow delivery service. It hasn't actually <laughs> arrived yet, but I'm looking forward to 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 consuming that. <laughs> Thinking about what you just said in terms of the learning to learn um, approaches, when when it comes to pl- planning that, like any kind of initiative or yeah. materials. Um, how is that organized or developed between the department before you said that you used to be head of department, then you were like key stage lead Um, in our school, for example, it's sometimes it can be very top down. It's just the expectation is your key stage three lead or your year eight leads, whatever you want to call it. uh, And you, you develop all the materials. Um, how, How does it work in your experience? Well, I read um, with the Learning to Learn, Fear is a Mind Killer, uh, which was a really, really insightful read by James Mannion, I think it is, and Kate McAllister. And uh, their conclusion really was that a complex intervention is the best approach for learning to learn. So looking at opportunities um, in discrete lessons. So we're going to have learning to learn as a discrete lesson within our PSHE program, but we're also going to run it in our tutorial program. And then we're really also going to train our teachers to then embed certain strategies within the subject. So it has to, it has to be this sort of multi-pronged approach um, for it to be really successful. Mm. There has to be buy-in from everyone, essentially, from the outset, I guess, yeah. That, again, like that's, that is a book I literally ordered about three days ago. That's bizarre that you mentioned that. Uh, I heard him in conversation with, uh, I think it was Guy Caxton or someone like that, and it was, yeah, that that's really interesting. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to reading that as well. Um, in terms of, you kind of mentioned this, actually, at the top of the, the interview when you mentioned Of Mice and Men. How do you feel... How do you approach or feel about the need to balance canonized writers like Steinbeck with new, in your case, Italian voices in the curriculum? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. Again, um, I think that for me, I've always been against the dead white man curriculum, as we call it. I just I just think it's incredibly narrow. I do recognise its importance and I do recognise that we need to acknowledge it. But I think especially in an international school, we have to get a plethora of voices in, you know, and, and we definitely want our pupils to, to see themselves in the stories we teach. You know, one of the key IGCC texts is the danger of a single story for the for the reading exam. And I just... I think the more stories we offer, for, for me, honestly, when I'm choosing a book that I'm going to do, it's about the quality of the story. Um, and then I am thinking about the diverse range of voices that we're getting in. We've, we've got to choose really great, powerful stories because what we want to do is really engage our pupils with reading. Um, and that's that's got to be the first priority. And then, you know, we do need to look, especially in an international context, at the diverse range of voices that we're also bringing in doesn't always I don't think have to be the novels necessarily but it's the poems it's the speeches it's the other forms of nonfiction. it's the short stories it's you know where is there that opportunity to ensure that they're not just getting that one voice from one era or one gender or one race mm. do, do you think Cambridge or uh, like IGCSE whichever kind of curriculum that you guys use it um, St George's do you think they do a good job of the options that they make available for the prose the poetry the drama and, and such um, I think they could do better <laughs> I think <laughs> well I think what's really really interesting with Alex is that they've really reflected upon that with the GCSE uh, curriculum so they brought in a new anthology of diverse voices uh, but there's been there hasn't been very there's been very little that's been done with the IGCSE curriculum um, some of the poetry is quite white yeah. and male. Um, so I think there's an opportunity there. I guess now the, the situation that we're in, the time that we're in, that maybe isn't their priority, but I do think it's something that is worth looking at in the future for sure. I think particularly with the IB, you've got that opportunity to sort of curate the um the 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 reading list, as it were, like to your own specification. Is it is it it's quite an inelegant thing to say, but is it possible, do you think, to have a trade-off between for every I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a dead white writer, but for every sort of canonical text, you also have a text that is representative of a more diverse voice. Is that too much of an inelegant kind of ratio or like how do you how do you how do you square that circle in terms of making sure they do have access to you know some Shakespeare or some Dickens or some or do we just completely draw a line under anything from before the you know 20th century no absolutely not I mean I love Shakespeare and I absolutely I'm a massive fan of Dickens and I teach at Christmas Carol because I think it's a brilliant story. It's a, you yeah. know, a really fantastic story and, and the pupils really enjoy it. Um, I think that the really interesting thing for me with the IB and moving towards the IB is that you don't know what you don't know. So part of the challenge, I think, for IB teachers, especially when they first move internationally, is you don't know sometimes the stories that are out there that are diverse or new mm. or interesting. You know, I've only, I've only literally been introduced to Merakami recently, who's just phenomenal. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure it's a mathematical equation as such. I think, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. For me, yeah, yeah. for me, it's, I mean, for me, I, I work quite conceptually. So, you know, our year nine is very much about power. Our curriculum seems to be about power. And I think if you work conceptually, there's actually so many opportunities to bring in that diversity. 
I, I think that's really helpful. Mm, yeah. Um, in terms of, again, thinking about like knowing what you don't know or not knowing what you don't know, et cetera, et cetera. I think one of the main challenges that can come with international teaching is when you go to a Hong Kong, a Singapore, a Rome, a, you know, Ulaanbaatar, wherever, you, to what extent would you say that the students in Rome that you've come across have specific challenges in, in English? And how does, how has the department combated that in terms of their language or their comprehension needs? Yeah, I think uh, we're a very fortunate, healthy international school in terms of numbers, especially given the recent situation. And, and we're actually probably oversubscribed in the sense that we've got a waiting list. And I think with that comes those challenges of that diversity of need. So we have some students in Key Stage 3, for example, who are A1, A2, and other students who are C2, C3. Mm. Um and we have, I mean, we have a fantastic EAL department, but we have to also, I think, always remember that at the heart of it, especially in international education, we are language teachers and the, the sort of direct instruction with regard to language and grammar and vocabulary mm. is even more important because that's why they're with us. You know, ultimately, students in Italy, Italian students choose to come to an international school because they want to become proficient in English. Mm. And so that has to be, that has to be our focus. Yeah, it reminds me of a comment a, a former colleague made once actually when we were all sat around the table discussing how to run a poetry unit and he brought up the idea that you know with we're we're teaching them I was a drama unit because he said we're teaching them what sticker media means and they can't even form the past participle so that that really resonates with me actually the point that they're there too that yeah we're, we're language teachers first and foremost yeah um what part does technology play in in St George's with either within the department or just the school at large with regard to delivering the curriculum? Well, I think this time has been amazing for technology. I mean, I think we've all suddenly become very expert in technology, right? You know, even yeah. those, even the most reluctant and resistant to technology, we've had to embrace it. I mean, we. We obviously were locked down for the best part of last year, and then we we came back and we've had time where you know certain new groups have been out certain pupils have been out so I think that there is a place for technology I don't think it's everything I think it's one pedagogical Mm -hmm. tool and we have to remember why we're using technology so what learning purpose is it suiting so um, I did a, a paper for the Chartered College, an essay on technology in the classroom. And, you know, it's very, very clear that there are certain things that technology is great for. So visual loads are great for modeling and those metacognitive processes. There's lots of amazing platforms out there for retrieval. Um, So Quizlet um, and and others, obviously, um, which I think are really, really supportive to the learning process. And then I think for me, the tools that I probably now use a lot more than I used to do are things like Menti and Jamboard and Padlet for sharing ideas. And actually, I think what was really lovely is that some of those quieter voices started to share more using the technologically, I can't even speak, technological tools. Um, And they were were able to feed in and they felt more confident because it was quite anonymized. Um, And you started to hear a wider range of voices. So, uh, the things that I definitely are going to be keeping are things like Menti, because I think it's a brilliant feedback mm. tool. Um, the visualizer is obviously an essential bit of kit for everybody now. 
And Quizlet, for me, you know, even with the IGCC exam and the Of My Cement closed book, is just fantastic for quotation learning. So I think we can go crazy with technology, but I think it's really, really important to remember why we're using it and how it is beneficial to the pupils. Yeah, I think that, again, resonates very strongly. I'm not sure the experience in Hong Kong is that similar to Italy, but uh, yeah, I would I would 100% um, agree with that. In, in terms of the curriculum itself, like the the content of the curriculum, from like a language point of view, like a language and literature IB point of view, are you worried that anything that you're teaching will, I mean, I can't see Sophocles, for example, becoming irrelevant. I can't see Shakespeare becoming irrelevant, but sometimes I stop during the language and literature course, which has me teaching things like, you know, print advertisement or websites or, or this kind of, maybe not websites so much, but we've done bodies of work where it's, you know, 15, 10, 15 ad print adverts. And I think to myself, like, do, do they need this? Like, isn't this, wouldn't I be better off teaching the five second videos that you have at the beginning of a YouTube video? Or have you, have you built anything into the curriculum or is there anything you're sort of worried about um, becoming obsolescent by the time the kids finish university? I think that's a great question. Um, it's not something that I've massively considered, but I think it's a really good point. So I do a lot of print adverts. I think yeah. we've built in a, a lot more media. So in terms of like the moving image, so a lot more films. But I, I yeah, I think that's a really, really good point and something definitely worth considering. It's, I, I think it's also a little bit you're, you're damned if you do or you're damned if you don't as well, though, because I could take those YouTube videos and make a whole scheme of work on them. And then YouTube might not be a thing in five, ten years time. You know, it's it's kind of it's hard not to uh, ignore the fact that going with something that's been, you know, a, a Marlboro kind of print advert has been around for sort of 50 years. There's a reason for that. But yeah, there's, it, it keeps me not awake at night, but it, it, sometimes I do kind of uh, question my uh, my decisions when it comes to putting those schemes of work together. I suppose it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, it's the canical versus the modern again, but in the, mm. the non-fiction world. I think also for me, really, really interesting is watching where potentially the IB could go. So NYP, you've got all of the assessments now online and these e-portfolios and stuff like that, which I think is really, really interesting. And actually we do do, or I do my learner uh, portfolio for the IB um, on Google sites. And it's just been incredible. It's been absolutely incredible to utilize the technology in that way. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting. Who knows, you know, once, once this is all over, we hope um, where, where it might take us. Um. Okay, for those who haven't read the the Guardian's feature article on you about teachers abroad from uh, a couple of years ago, I remember I, I actually remember reading that at the time, and obviously years later, like a kind of how long ago was that? For like two years ago, three, yeah, three years. I remember reading that at the time, and then I kind of became more aware of your work like six, seven, eight months ago, and then I suddenly put two and two together. I was like, oh my God, that's that lady who was having a cup of tea in front of the, the thing in Rome. But anyway, um, if they haven't read that article, which I'll, I'll, I'll stick a link to in the, the notes um, for the podcast, what's the work-life balance like in Rome? As Maybe not as compared to back home, because that's slightly unfair, but how do you think Rome as a city is quite unique in terms of what it offers culturally to work-life balance? I just think it's the right way around here. So I think in England, you 
live to work. And I think people just work incredibly long hours and then work becomes their entire life. And sometimes I worry genuinely about people on Twitter who just seem to be tweeting about work all the time, uh, which is probably why I post as many pictures of Spritz Aperol. You know, because <laughs> yeah. I just think that we have to remember that our work, as and I say this as much as I love it, and I do love my job, and I love the people that I teach, and I love what I do day to day, it is my job. And outside there is a world to, to explore and, and have fun with. And I think this time with, with COVID has has really reinforced that, right? You know, who knows what's around the corner? We need to go out and we need to make the most of our life. And I, what I really love about Italy is it is work to live. It is work to live. And uh, there's so many opportunities here, you know, probably just, you know, culturally, culturally in terms of the weather, because it's so beautiful, you, you just spend so much more time outside, which I think is really good for your mental health and your, your energy. Um, you know, the big piazzas with bars and restaurants and, you know, there's so many beautiful museums and art galleries. It is all about going out and enjoying life around you. And I just think, for me, we need to remember that as much as we love our jobs, we need to love ourselves and our life away from work as much, if not more. It's not all kind of um, spritz and sun. No, I do. I've noticed that you've um, that you're you're a part of Women Ed Italia. So that's another example of, I suppose, something which you might not get an opportunity to do in the UK if you're working all hours of the of the of the week. That you can have these sort of side projects which give you. Um, you know, a sense of connection to other people. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? What is Women as Italia for people who haven't seen it? Yeah, so I mean, Women Ed Italia is a branch of, of Women Ed generally, you know, I think that Women Ed has just grown so much over the over the past few years. And so there, there's different um, networks in Italy, in uh, Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, and, you know, Spain, they're all over. And I think that's also a really nice thing about this time period where we have had to draw upon technology as well to connect, you know, and I think that's really important to emphasise when you're working internationally, that just because you move internationally doesn't mean that you're omitted from these groups, you know, so Women Ed, there is a Women Ed Italia that you can join and be a part of. And, you know, we've been very fortunate in the range of CPD and webinars that are available, chartered um, the C-Teach programme, you know, that is available to people uh, outside of the UK and I think you know just because you move abroad doesn't mean that your CPD or your professional networking stops in fact actually during this time it's probably become even even healthier um, so there are just so many opportunities still to be part of those networks. Yeah it's, it's fantastic to to see the rise of women ed actually all, all across um all across Europe it's not it's not something that I've recognized that much of in southeast asia so maybe yeah there's there's hope that someone or sort of something can get started with the enhanced capabilities we all now have in technology um, what, what's really lovely, actually, is that Rosanna leads it here and um, what she's able to do as an Italian but English speaker as well is unite teachers in the international sector with teachers in Italian schools. And that that's a wonderful uh, thing to be able to start to do as well. Yeah. Um, for those those who haven't um, heard you speak with the answers about, um, I think it was about, it was generative feedback, wasn't it? And you were doing the one, which which technique were you doing? 
Um, prayer. So the, the teaching. Ah, uh, yeah, the, the teaching. teaching. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, but in terms of that conversation, uh, one of the sort of tangential comments you made was that the amount of freedom that you're afforded in the international scene um, is is a lot greater than the UK, uh, at least in your experience. Does your department have any sort of approaches to marking or what's the school's expectation with frequency and turnaround time? Is there an expectation that you have lots more marking as a result of more time or how does that sort of dynamic um, play out? No, I mean, so our um, deputy head was very good and, you know, recognises that actually different departments need to mark in different ways. So it's a very sort of loose structure with regard to marking. Um I tend to green pen a lot. So the pupils do a lot of their own sort of marking with with green penning. And that was a technique that I got from Michaela. Um, And then we have exercise books, which are notebooks. And then we obviously have our core assessments, which we, to be fair, mark in a very similar way to the way in which we would back in the UK. So it's it's not fundamentally different in any way, shape or form. But we, we have... I would say it's probably a little bit looser and we're just trusted to mark and feedback in an appropriate way for us. Mm, okay, that's that's quite refreshing. Um, and last question is, in terms of resources, I mean, you've, you've mentioned quite a few today or you've, uh, you've mentioned some very useful names. What have you come across in your um, travels on Twitter in the last few months and maybe even years, which you think English teachers specifically would do well to um, to read or to listen to um, when they have the time? So three, like three suggestions. I just I think English teachers are just so lucky on Twitter. We just have this wealth, don't we, of materials available and people available. There's just some outstanding practitioners on Twitter. So, you know, if you're not following Stuart, follow Stuart. I don't even need to give his second name because everyone knows who I'm talking about. Jenny, Jenny Webb, Kat Howard. I mean, they're just phenomenal, aren't they? They just put themselves out there and they're so supportive to the English network. Obviously, Team English. Uh, making sure that you're following Team English because there's there's just a whole network there of people who are willing to support and help. Um, I think that we've also just done so well on the book market in terms of English uh, pedagogy. So again, you know, Jenny has written um, a number of books. Teach Like a Writer really, really made me think about the authenticity of what we produce in the classroom and how, how we approach that. Um, I absolutely love the writing revolution. Um, Missy B often talks about how that's implemented at primary. And I think that's something that we can definitely work on as a transition thing across primary and secondary. Um, I love Lindsay Skinner's crafting sentences, Kate McCabe's work on sentence instruction and the curriculum that she put together. I just think we have so much. (laughs) It's just incredible. It is incredible. And I, I have to say, I actually feel so guilty because I used to share so much and I feel like since I've been here I've probably shared less uh but I am I'm hoping to share more again soon <laughs> yeah I, I yeah my credit card has definitely taken a, a taken a battering ever since uh, lockdown occurred it seems like every time you go onto Twitter just someone is suggesting a new book or someone on a podcast is suggesting and it's just an endless, like this book leads to that book. And it, we, we do have it very good as English teachers. I agree with you. Well, one thing I wondered was how much hope do you have for 
um, sort of the maybe not the next generation of English teachers, but it, 20, 30 years in the future, because there is such an incredible wealth, like you say, of literature out there now for people to improve their practice. To what extent can we expect um, the teachers coming out of university in 20, 30 years time to be so much far ahead of you know where where we were at the beginning of our career, where we were we were relatively not exactly in the stone age of research and 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 uh, investigation, but of best best practice, but certainly nowhere near as informed as we are now, nearing the middle of our careers. I think that's an amazing question, um, and honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think back to when I first started, and there was there was no research there was no sort of discussion about research in you know and research in the classroom and you know I reflect upon where we're at now we have a what I think is an amazing framework for early career teachers coming out which I just think is phenomenal and actually could be used by anybody I mean I've been looking at the criteria thinking oh I should be doing a bit of that or a bit more of this um I think you know what's really really important is that we continue to support new entrants to the profession and I'm kind of digressing here in terms of I don't know who knows um (laughs) But also, I think what we do need to be really careful of, and I'm guilty of this as well, is that there is a plethora of CPD. And oh, my goodness, I can't tell you how many books I've got on my bookshelf right now. And I've got all of the virtual conference uh, from the World Education Summit to catch up on. We've got to be really careful, though, haven't we? And we've, we've, I think what we need to do is perhaps just maybe be a little bit cleverer and better at streamlining what we're reading and what we're watching and really just focus in on one or two key areas so I am guilty of soaking everything up mainly because I'm here and I want to keep connected with the CPD world back home in England but I think you can overwhelm yourself and then I think you have to ask yourself and Louise Lewis on Twitter is really really good at this you know how much of this is actually really impacting on what you're doing, whether that's, you know, at at a planning or strategic level, whether that's in the classroom. And I think often not so much. We read something, we forget about it, it lays dormant, we don't do it, or we try to do too much at once. And I think for me, where I'm at now is thinking, you know, what is it that I really, really want to focus in on? And therefore, what am I going to pay more attention to? So at the moment, I'm really, really interested in learning to learn. I'm really interested in the approaches to learning. And actually, I think we have to be really careful with ourselves and go, just focus on that. Just focus on mm. that for now. Do that really well. And then maybe find something else to, to look at later on. So my hope would be in the future that we continue to offer teachers the support that they need to stay in the profession, uh, to have a healthy work-life balance, to love their job, but to love their life, but also to really consider the things that interest them in the classroom and again you know the new mpqs are amazing because that provides people with a route perhaps uh to focus in on well yeah i sort of kind of going back to something you said a few moments ago about giving like the most support that we possibly can to new people within the profession i wonder whether some mats or even individual independent schools might go down the you know, the Michaela route of just saying we don't care if you don't have a university um, kind of qualification for teaching. We have like our own robust three, four, five year training thing. and We're just going to I wonder whether you might see more and more of that and the universities having to 
hopefully kind of bring things uh, a lot of the universities i'm sure do a very good job of staying up to date with the most recent research but maybe that'll force a kind of market shift to bring things a little bit more into the 21st century which would be would be nice um yeah okay um all that remains for me to say i suppose is uh thank you very much for joining me today freya it's uh it's been an absolute pleasure to follow you on twitter for the last few weeks months however long it's been and um yeah i hope you're having a, a lovely time in rome and uh you uh yeah get to enjoy a little bit more of the sunshine and a little bit more time outdoors as the absolutely i hope everyone can stay safe and hopefully we can go back to some form of normality soon